I was born February 12, 1809 in Hardin County, Kentucky. My mother, who died in my 10th year, was of a family of the name of Hanks, some of who now reside in Adams and others in Macon County, Illinois. My father grew up literally without education. He moved from Kentucky to what is now Spencer County, Indiana in my 8th year. It was a wild region, with many bears and other wild animals still in the woods. There I grew up. There were some schools, so-called, but no qualifications were ever required of a teacher beyond reading, writing, and ciphering. If a straggler supposed to understand Latin happened to sojourn in the neighborhood, he was looked upon as a wizard. Of course, I did not know much. Abraham Lincoln, December 20th, 1859. Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge and a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, an author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two Ds in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 13, Kid Lincoln. You all know that I believe the second decade of the 19th century, the 18-teens, is a uniquely fascinating time in history. One of the things that's amazing about it is precisely where it's situated in time and the very long reach of the lifespans of some of the people who were alive during it. People sometimes live to very advanced ages. While I can't give you a name, I can guarantee you that somewhere on planet Earth, there was a person who was born in the year 1809. You'll recall from episode 2, I explain why it's fair to lump 1809 and 1820 into the second decade. Anyway, I guarantee you there was somebody who was born in 1809 who lived to the age of 110. That person who was a child during the second decade would have died shortly after the end of the First World War. And I can also guarantee you that someone who's hearing my voice right now had grandparents or maybe even parents who were alive during the First World War. Thus, someone out there who's hearing my voice right now personally knows someone who is a contemporary of someone who was alive during the second decade. One of the approximately one billion human beings who was alive during the second decade just happened to be the most famous American of all time. His birthday, what would have been his 208th, is coming up this week. Abraham Lincoln, born at the beginning of the second decade, lived to be only 56. You know what happened that tragic night at the theater. Most of the millions upon millions of words that have been written about Abraham Lincoln concern the end of his life, the last four years, 1861 to 65, during which he was the 16th President of the United States. A large part of this episode is going to be about the beginning of Lincoln's life, 
his first 11 years, from his birth in 1809 to the end of the second decade in 1820. But this is not just the story of a child born in the backwoods frontier who happened to turn out to be extraordinarily famous. This is also the story of Lincoln's mother. You see, there was something very unusual about Nancy Hanks Lincoln, about her body, her physical being, which she passed on to her son Abraham. Historians have generally not understood this aspect or accepted this aspect of Lincoln's life until recently, the 21st century. But it was a key part of him and could well have deeply affected how American history unfolded. It's a pretty amazing story. When I learned it, I completely changed my thinking about Abraham Lincoln, his remarkable family, and the time he lived in. Now, I'm going to tell it to you. Join me now for the story of, for lack of a better term, Kid Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was born on February 12, 1809 in LaRue County, Kentucky. His birthplace, which is now a National Historical Park, has become an American shrine. Several U.S. presidents boasted about having been born in log cabins, not always truthfully, but Lincoln really was. The actual cabin has not survived. If you go to the Abraham Lincoln Birthplace National Historical Park, you'll see a log cabin there, but it's a reconstruction, built in 1911. The original log cabin was dismantled long ago, probably before Lincoln became president. The time during which his birth occurred is actually really significant. Two months at the beginning of 1809, February and March, keep recurring in this series. It was sometime in these two months that a volcano, we don't know exactly where it was, so I call it Mountain X, a volcano erupted somewhere in the tropics, shrouding the earth in volcanic dust that changed the world's climate. We talked about that in episode 7. February 1809 was the same month a mysterious chest washed up on the beach of the island of Nevis in the British West Indies, containing the unidentified corpse of a woman embalmed in tea. We talked about that in episode 2. March 1809, just a few weeks after Lincoln's birth, was when Thomas Jefferson left the presidency and returned home to Monticello to face an uncertain future. We talked about that in episode 6. That Lincoln was born in this fascinating little sliver of time when so much was happening in the world is a fabulous coincidence. In history, we're not supposed to believe in karma or predestination, but those ideas are curiously attractive here. I'll say no more about that. The story of Lincoln as a child, though, hardly begins with a woman giving birth in a rude little log cabin in the Kentucky backwoods on a winter morning. Who was that woman? How did she get there? And what was this environment that Abraham Lincoln was born into? Lincoln's mother was named Nancy Hanks. Yes, the modern Hanks family, actors Tom Hanks and his son Colin, are evidently related to her. She was born in 1784 in what's now Antioch, West Virginia. In 1784, there was no such thing as West Virginia. It was just Virginia. Incidentally, West Virginia did not split off from Virginia until Nancy Hanks' son was president. There's some confusion about her parentage and her family. During his lifetime, Lincoln told his law partner, William Herndon, that his mother was the illegitimate daughter of a rich Virginia planter. Historians can't verify that as true, but it may well be that she was illegitimate. Shortly after her birth, her grandfather, Joseph Hanks, moved his extended family, which included Nancy, 
from Virginia across the Wilderness Trail into Kentucky. About 1793, Nancy Hanks, then about nine, went to live with her mother's family, the Sparrows, in another part of Kentucky. Three years later, she moved again, living with another branch of the Sparrow family. In fact, she was sort of informally adopted by the Sparrow family, and often gave her name as Nancy Sparrow. Living with the Sparrows, and with another branch of relatives, the Berries, in a relatively well-to-do log cabin, this would have two stories, Nancy Hanks, or Sparrow, learned the art of being a seamstress. Richard Berry, Nancy's uncle, at one point in the 1790s owned 10 horses, 34 head of cattle, 600 acres of land, and two slaves. Slavery touches Lincoln's life and family from the beginning, even before his birth. We know more about Abraham Lincoln's father and about his family. Thomas Lincoln was born in 1778, also in Virginia. His father, President Lincoln's grandfather, was also named Abraham Lincoln. The elder Lincoln, sometime in the 1780s, heard about the great riches, at least in terms of land, from their family's distant relative, the frontier explorer Daniel Boone. Abraham Lincoln, again I'm talking about President Lincoln's grandfather, moved his family to the Kentucky frontier to seek this wealth. The Lincolns did pretty well. They owned 5,544 acres of land, and it was pretty good land, rich farm and forest land. Abraham Lincoln, the elder, had three sons, Mordecai, Josiah, and Thomas. In 1786, not long after they got to Kentucky, their homestead was attacked by Indians. Abraham was struck down and killed pretty much instantly. Mordecai, who was then 15, took charge. As Indian warriors rushed toward young Thomas, who was sitting in the field crying over his father's bloody body, Mordecai grabbed a rifle, aimed, and shot down the warrior who was advancing on his brother. This all happened more than 20 years before young Abraham Lincoln's birth, but the story of the Indian attack, when his father was a child, made a huge impression on Lincoln. His father told the story frequently. Obviously, it was a formative experience. How could it not be, seeing your dad murdered right in front of you? The Indian attack profoundly altered the economic fortunes of the Lincoln family. Although they had a lot of property, when Abraham the grandfather, when he died, everything went to the oldest son, Mordecai. As the boys grew up, Mordecai refused to share. The younger sons had to go out and work on their own and scratch a living from the land. As it turned out, the Lincolns lived not too far from the Berries, where, as you'll recall, Nancy Hanks, or Nancy Sparrow, or whatever the hell her name was, that was where she lived. At least she worked there. We're not sure of much of anything. There wasn't much in the way of written records kept at this time beyond property and court records. We do know that Thomas Lincoln married Nancy Hanks at a nearby place called Beachland in Washington County, Kentucky, on June 12, 1806. We know this because the marriage document, known then as a marriage bond, has survived. He met Nancy probably through the course of his work, taking any odd jobs he could find on the frontier. Supposedly, he was pretty good at building log cabins. And after their marriage, he built one for his new wife in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. It was in this cabin that their first child, Sarah, was born on February 10, 1807, two years and two days before the birth of their second child. By late 1808, when Nancy was pregnant again, Thomas Lincoln had bought new property, 300 acres, on Nolan Creek, and it was called Sinking Spring because there was a nice little spring on the land. 
On this property, Thomas built the famous log cabin. You could build one of these cabins in about four days if you knew how. The place was one room, 16 feet by 18 feet. It had a dirt floor and no windows. It was probably pretty damn cold and damp in winter. You cooked food on an iron pot hung over the fire pit, which was just a couple of stones. It probably smelled like crap, and there were bugs and critters everywhere. Imagine being nine months pregnant in this environment, in winter, having just moved a couple of months before, and with a two-year-old girl to take care of at the same time. This would not have been pleasant. This is the situation into which Abraham Lincoln was born. This whole period of backwoods frontier history, especially around the time of the second decade, is kind of murky. By 1809, Kentucky was a state, having split off from Virginia at about the time the Constitution was ratified. But the difference between Virginia, with its tidewater plantations and rich gentlemen like Thomas Jefferson, and Kentucky, the heavy, heavily forested frontier across the mountains, was very stark. It was America, but it was the kind of new America that was forged out of the western frontier, uncertain, filled with hopeful but mostly poverty-stricken white settlers, spaces contested between settlers and Native Americans, there were still plenty around, and a kind of thin veneer of American law and custom over what was still very much a wild land. And slavery. There was slavery. Frontier slavery was a little different than the traditional plantation slavery you'd find in the established South, in Virginia or in South Carolina. Frontier families did sometimes own slaves, but usually only one or two. Rich landowners, though, were at this time buying up the best farmland in Kentucky, consolidating it, and turning it into huge profitable farms manned by armies of slaves. The freeholder farmers, like Thomas Lincoln, had a hard time competing economically. For this reason, as well as moral and religious ones, the Lincolns grew to detest slavery. Slavery was also indirectly related to why the Lincolns left Kentucky for Indiana in 1816. Thomas Lincoln and the Sinking Spring Farm were subject to a legal action called ejectment. Essentially, a rich out-of-state landowner claimed the Lincolns were squatting on their land. It had to do with the system of land descriptions. Property descriptions at this time were sometimes stuff like, from a tree in the southwest corner with three lines scratched on it, go north 185 feet to a pile of rocks in the northwest corner, etc. With this kind of description, it was hard to know where one person's land ended and another's began. Rich people, who could afford lawyers and thus access to the courts, were constantly filing suit against the small frontier farmers to try to quiet title. Who were these rich people? The very same landowners who owned slaves. Thomas Lincoln couldn't settle the title to the Sinking Spring property, so he decided to move. In the fall of 1816, Thomas Lincoln left his family and went on what we today call a house hunting trip to Indiana. House hunting on the western frontier in 1816 was pretty rustic. He chose a quarter section in Perry County and, according to the law at that time, improved, air quotes around improved, to mark it as belonging to him. This meant he piled up some branches on the four corners of the property and built a sort of lean-to shack open on one side, which the family would live in temporarily when they arrived. Thomas went back to get the family. In December 1816, the family, who had a few horses and some sort of horse-drawn cart, trundled across the frontier to Perry County, Indiana. They arrived on the day, or near in time to the day, that Indiana was admitted to the Union as a state on December 11, 1816. Slavery was not legal 
in Indiana. The family probably stayed in that lean-to, it was sometimes called a half-face camp, while Thomas built a new log cabin. This was Abraham Lincoln's new home. Aside from the horses, the family owned a spinning wheel, Nancy was a steamstress, you recall, a skillet, a Dutch oven, a kettle, a few wooden bowls, some eating utensils, and probably some blankets. That was it. In this windowless cabin, all the light came from either the fireplace or a makeshift lamp, which was a wick stuck into a cup full of bear grease. But that smelled good. They had a Bible and what passed as a school textbook, Dilworth's Speller. Nancy could read, she may not have been able to write, but she could read, and she taught Abraham and Sarah mostly from the Bible. Abraham, who turned eight in 1817, was already well familiar with hard work on the frontier. His father's property was filled with trees and brush. His job, at least while he was still little, was to clear out the smaller brush. He described an early memory, probably from 1816 or 1817, of shooting a wild turkey with his father's gun through a chink in the wall of the log cabin. In the summer and fall of 1818, a tragic event that was to have a huge impact on Abraham started to develop. This event is closely linked to the physical environment in which the frontier settlers lived. It involves a disease they called the milk sick. In especially warm summers in the frontier forests, cattle would wander deep into the woods for forage. Often they were attracted to a plant called the white snake root, which blooms in the late summer with white flowers very attractive to cows. White snake root contains a poisonous chemical called temetrol. When cows eat enough of this plant, they'd get what pioneer farmers called the trembles, and usually drop dead within three days. Temetrol, once ingested by cows, shows up in their meat and their milk. When people ate meat or drank milk from cows that had the trembles, they were at risk from this poison. Sometimes whole towns were wiped out by the milk sickness. One observer passing through this area of Indiana after an outbreak of milk sickness wrote this, quote, I saw this season a number of farms in Perry County, Indiana, lying uncultivated, and the houses tenantless, which last autumn were covered with cornfields whose gigantic and thrifty stalks overtopped a man's head on horseback. In September 1818, an aunt and uncle of Lincoln's mother, Thomas and Elizabeth Sparrow, came to live temporarily with the Lincolns, along with their adopted son, Dennis Hanks. Thomas Sparrow came down with the milk sickness, which he got from one of the Lincoln's cows. The milk sickness moved fast. It started with dizziness, intense nausea, and stomach pains, then eventually caused respiratory and heart problems, coma, and death. People who caught it were usually dead within a week. In the last week of September, Thomas Sparrow and Elizabeth Sparrow both died, days apart, of the milk sickness. Also a neighbor of the Lincolns, Mrs. Bruner, was afflicted. She died too. Nancy Lincoln helped tender in her final days. This must have been a very melancholy and tragic season for the young Abraham Lincoln, family members and neighbors dropping dead all over the place. By early October, Nancy herself was dying. Supposedly, she called her children one by one to her bedside to give them her last words. Nancy told Sarah that she would now be the woman of the Lincoln household, with all the grave responsibility that entailed. These are reportedly her last words to her son. I am going away from you, Abraham, and I shall not return. I know that you will be a good boy and that you'll be kind to Sarah and to your father. I want you to live as I have taught you and to love your heavenly father. 
On October 5, 1818, Nancy Hanks Lincoln died. Thomas, Abraham's father, had been busy in the past weeks making coffins for the members of his family who were dying like flies. Now came the cruelest task of all, building a coffin for his wife and preparing her body for burial. Abraham whittled the little wooden pegs that held the coffin together. He also wrote a letter to a local preacher, one Reverend Elkin, asking him to give a sermon at his mother's grave. The Reverend agreed, though he couldn't make it right away. Evidently, the funeral was conducted the next spring, 1819, and the Reverend read services over everybody in the neighborhood who'd been carried away by the milk sickness. There's an eyewitness account of Nancy Lincoln's funeral. Here it is. Quote, On a bright Sabbath morning, the settlers of the neighborhood gathered in. Some came in carts of the rudest construction, their wheels consisting of huge bowls of forest trees and the product of axe and auger. Some came on horseback, two or three upon a horse. Others came in wagons drawn by oxen, and still others came on foot. Taking his stand at the foot of the grave, Parson Elkin lifted his voice in prayer and sacred song, and then preached a sermon. He spoke of the precious Christian woman who had gone, with the warm praise which she had deserved, and held her up as an example of true womanhood. End quote. The milk sickness had decimated the neighborhood and the Lincoln household. Only four were still alive. Thomas, Sarah, Abraham, and Dennis Hanks, the adopted son of the Sparrows. The loss of his mother devastated Abraham Lincoln. In a way, he never got over it. For the rest of his life, he revered the memory of his mother as a saint. Nancy Hanks Lincoln's grave is still visible at what they now call the Pioneer Cemetery in what's now Lincoln County, Indiana. The present gravestone was put up in 1878. People put flowers on it to this day, nearly 200 years after her death. The life and death of Nancy Hanks Lincoln had an effect that rippled outwards through history. It will eventually get us to the second part of our story tonight, a medical story, but first, the human story. In the fall of 1819, Thomas Lincoln, Abraham's father, decided he'd been alone long enough. That fall, he took a trip back to Kentucky looking for a wife. He left Sarah, Abraham, and Dennis alone in the gloomy cabin to fend for themselves. This was not unusual on the frontier in the early 19th century. Helicopter parents were unknown in this time. Thomas reconnected with an old friend of the family, Sally Bush Johnston, whose late husband had also known the Lincolns when they lived in Kentucky. In December 1819, Thomas married her. It was a move of convenience for Sally. She had three children by her previous husband, who died in the summer of 1816. She brought them, Elizabeth, John, and Matilda, to the Lincoln homestead in Indiana with her new husband. So now Abraham, aged 10, and his older sister Sarah were part of a blended family. Abraham Lincoln was to learn much from his new stepmother. She brought books with her and saw to the education of the Lincoln children. One of the books was Aesop's Fables, from which Lincoln drew a number of moral lessons he continued to repeat in his public life. She also brought Pilgrim's Progress, a classic text from which many frontier children got what little education they had. By 1820, the end of the second decade, Abraham and the other Lincoln children, this sort of frontier-bred Brady Bunch, blended family, attended briefly a school in a nearby community called Little Pigeon Creek. The teacher was named Andrew Crawford. 
This was undoubtedly the so-called school that Lincoln referred to in the quote that opened this episode. As the second decade ended, Abraham Lincoln, future president of the United States, was a few months away from his 12th birthday. At that tender age, he'd already lived a pretty rough life. He'd seen death and disease, worked hard, learned a few key lessons that would shape his life and his legacy throughout history. Indeed, I think the person that Abraham Lincoln became was forged in that crucial decade. But there's more to the making of Lincoln than just his mind, brilliant though it was, or his moral constitution, which never wavered. There's also another side. As we all know, Abraham Lincoln grew up from that gangly, introspective boy he was at the end of the second decade into a highly remarkable and unusual man. We've all seen the pictures of Lincoln, the same pictures, because there weren't many photos taken in his lifetime, at least compared to the photographic record of other presidents. We all know what he looked like. In 1962, nearly a hundred years after Lincoln's death, a physician, Dr. Abraham Gordon of Louisville, Kentucky, published an article in a medical journal with a startling hypothesis. He claimed that Lincoln had a rare genetic disorder called Marfan syndrome. This is a very rare and strange condition that affects the bones and connective tissues of the human body. One of the characteristics of Marfan syndrome is overgrowth of what doctors call the long bones, the bones in your arms and legs, hands and feet, and also ribs. These bones grow longer than they do in most people. Consequently, people with Marfan syndrome are usually very tall, thin, and oddly proportioned compared to other people. People with Marfan syndrome also have sort of elongated heads. Not always, but their heads turn out to be proportioned differently than non-Marfan people. Until fairly recently, the use of modern medical treatments, people who have Marfan syndrome have tended to die earlier than people who don't have it. Not always, but often. As a historian, I'd heard of the Marfan syndrome issue with regard to Lincoln. Honestly, I didn't give it much attention. A favorite and ultimately useless parlor game in history is to quote-unquote diagnose historical figures with conditions or illnesses as we understand them today. Usually, this kind of thing devolves into debates in letter sections of medical journals. Composer Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart died suddenly in 1791 at age 35. There have been long-standing debates of historical diagnoses of his final illness, or a whole book was written a few years ago on the idea that Thomas Jefferson supposedly had Asperger's syndrome. These debates continue precisely because they're not resolvable. A doctor can't examine Jefferson or Mozart the way they could a modern patient. So does it matter whether Lincoln had Marfan syndrome? Probably not. I mean, I guess it's interesting, but it doesn't really change our view of him or of his life. It's different than, say, Franklin Roosevelt's paralysis from polio. That medical condition, which we know he had, was a very key component of the man, the personality he was, when he became president. Arguably, Roosevelt could not have launched the New Deal, or won World War II, without the steely resolve that he developed from fighting this tragic illness. Lincoln's different, though. He didn't know if he had Marfan syndrome. The disorder wasn't even discovered until 1896. He didn't die of complications related to Marfan syndrome. He died from a piece of lead which was fired into his brain by a dirt bag named John Wilkes Booth. So in the scheme of things, Lincoln and Marfan syndrome is kind of a big so what. In the early years of this century, Dr. John G. Sotos, a medical doctor and also a medical historian, began looking into the Lincoln-Marfan syndrome issue. He came to a startling conclusion. 
In his 2008 book, The Physical Lincoln, Dr. Sotos argued that Lincoln did not have Marfan syndrome. Instead, he had a totally different genetic disorder, potentially as serious, or much more serious, called, now let me get this right, multiple endocrine neoplasia type 2b, known most often as MEN2b. This disorder was first discovered in 1965, a century after Lincoln's death. It's extremely rare. According to Dr. Sotos, only 500 people out of over 300 million people in the United States are believed to have MEN2b. In the whole of modern medical literature, at least as of 2008, only 150 patients have been identified. The main problem with MEN2b is overgrowth of nerve cells. This is in addition to overgrowth of long bones, which is the problem with Marfan syndrome. Little bundles of nerve cells grow pretty much uncontrolled in various parts of the body, but for some reason they tend to appear in the lips and also in the thyroid gland. The word neoplasia, the N in MEN2B, means cancer. In many cases, my understanding is all of them, or almost all of them, people with this condition will develop cancer. It's just a question of when, where, and how bad it will be. I understand, again from this book, that it's common that if a patient is diagnosed with MEN2B, a doctor will usually recommend removing their thyroid gland immediately because it's such a hot spot for cancer. Dr. Sotis' diagnosis of MEN2B instead of Marfan syndrome makes sense once you understand the relationship between the two conditions. Mainly, there is no relationship. One does not cause the other. However, a symptom of MEN2B, overgrowth of long bones resulting in a strange body shape, is the same as a symptom of Marfan syndrome. Dr. Sotos refers to MEN2B as causing, in people who have it, a Marfanoid body shape. This completely accounts for why previous researchers have thought Lincoln had Marfan syndrome. Long gangly limbs? Check. Odd-shaped head? Check. A strangely shaped caved-in chest, which sometimes happens to people with Marfan syndrome, there is evidence of that too in Lincoln. Lincoln's lips are the key to understanding that he had MEN2B. His lips were strangely shaped. It had bumps in them. He had bumps in various other parts of his face, too. There is, for example, the famous mole on Lincoln's right cheek. Every actor who's ever played Lincoln in a movie, on TV or on the stage, from Royal Dano, the model for Disneyland's Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln robot, to Daniel Day-Lewis, who won an Oscar for playing Lincoln in 2012, every actor has been made up with the mole on his face. But it's not really a mole. Honestly, look at it. You can see it on a $5 bill. It's not dark-colored like moles are. It's a bump, a bundle of overgrown nerve tissue. These sorts of growths do not happen in people with Marfan syndrome. Then there is, and you'll forgive me here, Lincoln's bowels. Yes, his bowels. Due to the overgrowth of nerves in the digestive tract, gastrointestinal problems are said to be universal in patients with MEN2B. Severe constipation is a frequent complaint. This also does not happen in people with Marfan syndrome. Was Lincoln often constipated? Yes. There is historical evidence of it. A man named John Todd Stewart, one of Lincoln's law partners in Springfield, said that Lincoln had told him, you can imagine the circumstances, that he had, quote, no natural evacuation of bowels. 
Lincoln frequently took a kind of medication called blue mass, which were laxatives, containing an inorganic mercury compound. Stewart said, quote, I advised him to take blue mass, and he did take it before he went to Washington, and for five months while he was president. But when I went to Congress, he told me he had quit because it made him cross. Lincoln did take blue mass. Records of household purchases from his Springfield days before he was president have survived. In addition to blue mass, some records from a Springfield drugstore called Corneau and Diller from 1849 to 1860 show that the following medicine was delivered to the Lincoln household. Calomel, a laxative. Carminatives, a remedy for flatulence, which is a side effect of gastrointestinal problems. Castor oil, Ipecac, magnesia. In addition, another druggist, Samuel Melvin, delivered five boxes of blue mass pills to Lincoln just before he set out for Washington to become the nation's 16th president in 1861. Enough about the toilet. What are the other telltale signs of MEN2B which also don't appear in Marfan syndrome? Here we start to get into some of the many tragedies of Lincoln's life. I'm talking about the premature deaths of his children. I'm going to read you something that Dr. Sotos writes about MEN2B. He says in The Physical Lincoln, quote, MEN2B is a genetic disease. It arises from a variant piece of DNA and is passed from a parent to half of his or her children, statistically speaking, without skipping generations. End quote. A child of a parent with MEN2B has a 50 50 chance of inheriting the disease from that parent. This is a dominant recessive gene thing, which I admit I don't understand too well. Suffice it to say, MEN2B parent, you flip a coin as to whether that kid is going to have it or not. Statistically speaking, given the law of averages, if a couple, including an MEN2B parent, has four children, two of them will have the disease. Probably at least one of them won't. What should we be looking for in the historical record? Strange deaths of children, dying relatively young, and these children themselves should exhibit signs of MEN2B, like Marfanoid body shapes. William Wallace Lincoln, known as Willie, was the second son of Abraham Lincoln and Mary Todd Lincoln to survive infancy. Born in Springfield in 1850, he was nine when the family moved into the White House. In January 1862, Willie became ill, probably with typhoid fever, as a result of the toxic water supply the White House drew from the disease-ridden Potomac River. In early February, the Lincolns held a grand reception at the White House, which Lincoln felt was necessary to the morale of Washington as the Civil War was ramping up. It happened while Willie was deathly ill in a bedroom upstairs. For years afterwards, Abraham and Mary Lincoln argued about whether they should have held the reception at all, whether their lack of attention hastened Willie's death. Probably it wouldn't have made any difference. On February 20th, 1862, Willie, age 11, died. The loss devastated the Lincolns like nothing else. Neither of them ever recovered from it for the rest of their lives. It seems clear that Willie didn't die of cancer, but could he have had MEN2B? The clues are in Willie's body, its shape. He was just a kid and a few photos were taken of him, but the ones that were, if you examine closely, do show clues that indicate he could have had a Marfanoid body shape. It's not a slam dunk, but it's at least possible. Thomas Lincoln, called Tad, was an even stranger case. He was born in Springfield in 1853. 
A tall youth, spindly, oddly proportioned, Tad had a number of medical defects, including possibly, not definitely, a cleft palate. He had a speech impediment and couldn't eat properly. This could have been caused by nerve growths in his mouth or throat. Tad's death is very odd. He died in Chicago in 1871, at the age of 18. He started going downhill months earlier, losing weight, and couldn't sleep lying flat. Doctors said he had fluid in his chest, around the lungs, but not in the lungs. Curiously, he didn't seem to have a fever, which he would have had if it was pleurisy, an often-mentioned potential cause of his death. In adolescence, Tad's head became long and narrow, just like people with Marfan syndrome. Tad also had a very severe receding hairline. The last photo of him, taken two months before his death, he looks like an old man. Dr. Sotos believes all of these symptoms, except possibly the receding hairline, are consistent with a cancer that may have rooted in Tad's chest. All are consistent with MEN2B. So two of Lincoln's sons may have had MEN2B. What about the eldest son, Robert? It's notable that he was said to have resembled quite closely his mother, Mary Todd. Robert Lincoln lived to a ripe old age, served as Secretary of War under Presidents Garfield and Arthur, and later Ambassador to Great Britain. He died in 1926. Clearly he didn't have MEN2B, but remember what I said. It's a 50-50 chance whether a child inherits it from a parent. Robert was lucky. Willie and Tad, not so much. So here's the balance sheet on Abraham Lincoln. Marfanoid body shape. Evidence of nerve clusters, strange bumps on his lips and face. Constipation, including gastrointestinal problems. Two of three sons dying young, one of complications that could easily arise from MEN2B. The lip bumps, constipation, and family history could not be explained by Marfan syndrome. Thus, given the historical evidence, this is about as close as we can get to a diagnosis. Abraham Lincoln probably, not definitely, but probably, had MEN2B. So does it matter? Is it different than arguing about what Mozart died of, or whether Jefferson had Asperger's syndrome? Yes, it is different. Untreated, all sufferers of MEN2B will develop cancer. It's just a given. Remember the N in MEN2B is neoplasia, which means cancer. Abraham Lincoln died at age 56 from an assassin's bullet. But Dr. Sotis argues, and here's the key section of his book, The Physical Lincoln, he argues that Abraham Lincoln was dying of cancer in 1865. Had John Wilkes Booth not shot him, Lincoln would have been dead within six months. The evidence? There's actually a lot of it. Dr. Sotos describes cancer as a wasting disease, and Lincoln was wasting away in the last two years of his life. From 1860, when he was elected, to April 1865, when he went to Ford's Theater that fateful Friday night, Lincoln had several periods of increasingly serious illness. Look at the last portrait photo of Lincoln, taken in February 1865. He's virtually a living skeleton. Hollow eyes, sunken cheeks, a kind of faraway depressed look, his neck is thin like a buzzard's. Most historians have interpreted this photo as Lincoln having suffered physically from the terrible stress of the Civil War. But it's very plain. This is the face of a dying man. Furthermore, Lincoln probably knew he was dying. He told no one, not even his wife. But he had to know he was failing, and failing fast. And here's the impact it had on history. If Lincoln knew he was dying, 
he knew that he'd have to wrap up the Civil War and cement his legacy before anyone could undo it. Militarily, the war was pretty much over by the winter of 1864-65. It was a matter of wearing down the Confederate armies and convincing them to surrender, which did happen on April 9th. Politically, Lincoln's re-election in 1864 effectively saved the Union. Pro-Southern Democrats would not, could not, make peace with the Confederacy on terms that would allow their separation. But the key issue, and the one that Lincoln hastened to resolve, was the abolition of slavery, the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. This was a battle that all of Lincoln's advisors thought he would lose when he started working on it that winter, which was when, I'm convinced, he realized he was dying. The story of the ratification of the amendment is told pretty well in a number of famous books. It was ultimately the basis of the 2012 movie Lincoln that I mentioned earlier. Clearly, there were political reasons to push through the abolition of slavery as quickly as possible, but the MEN2B diagnosis also makes it a personal imperative. I am convinced that Lincoln wanted to do this to accomplish this more than anything, and accomplish it fast before he shuffled off this mortal coil. He did. The amendment was passed on January 31, 1865. It was the single most important legacy of the Civil War. And here's where, after a lengthy digression, we return to the second decade. If Abraham Lincoln had MEN2B, which you remember I said does not skip generations, who did he get it from? Not from his father, Thomas. He died in 1851, age 73, of whom there are photographs. He clearly did not have a marfanoid body shape, and he did not die of cancer. Therefore, Lincoln could only have inherited this condition from his mother, Nancy Hanks. Are there any indications that she had MEN2B? There could be. There are no photographs of her, as she died in 1818, and no portraits painted of her during her lifetime. Witnesses said she was abnormally tall for a woman, and quite thin. One description of her says, She was above the ordinary height in stature, weighed about 130 pounds, was slenderly built, and had much the appearance of one inclined to consumption. Most historians accept that Nancy Hanks Lincoln died of the milk sickness, but that's not entirely conclusive. Some witnesses said she died of consumption, tuberculosis, or there could have been another disease, a wasting disease, maybe cancer. One William Wood, an acquaintance of Lincoln to whom he, according to Lincoln's law partner William Herndon, spoke about his mother, he said, I do not think she absolutely died of the milk sickness entirely. Probably this helped to seal her fate. Perhaps, as her son would be a little less than 50 years later, Nancy Hanks Lincoln was weakened by cancer related to MEN2B when an intervening event finished her off before the cancer could claim her. Patterns like this do run in families. I believe that Abraham Lincoln had MEN2B. I believe he was dying of cancer in 1865 at the time of his assassination. Dr. Sotos makes an impressive case. If these things are true, when Nancy Hanks Lincoln gave birth to Abraham at the beginning of the second decade, she unwittingly passed on to him this genetic condition that would, in the first months of 1865, cause his cancer. It's therefore quite possible, probable I think, that this genetic condition, MEN2B, played a significant role in one of the most important events in all of American history, the abolition of slavery, once and for all time, through the passage of the 13th Amendment. 
Though the long chain of events was by no means inevitable, the fuse started burning at the moment of Lincoln's birth when he came out of the womb with that genetic disorder on a winter Sunday at the beginning of the second decade. If you like this podcast, please share it. Tell somebody about it. Mention it on your social media, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, whatever you do. Leaving a star rating and a review on iTunes is especially helpful because it will help other history buffs like you find this podcast. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash seanmunger. In addition to my Patreon account, you can find me on Twitter at seanmunger. There's an underscore there. And my website, seanmunger.com. My historical sources for this episode include Lincoln's Youth, Indiana Years 7-21 to by Louis A. Warren, New York, Appleson Century Crofts, 1959. Lincoln by David Herbert Donald, Simon & Schuster, 1995, and The Physical Lincoln, Complete, by John G. Sotos, Mount Vernon Book Systems, 2008. Music Credits The main theme of this podcast is titled String Impromptu No. 1 by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. Special thanks to Myron Schmidt, who portrayed Abraham Lincoln. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money at What's up, sandwich heads? Today on Steve-O's Sandwich Reviews, we've got the tips and tricks to the best sandwich order. And it all starts with this little guy right here. Pepsi Zero Sugar. Partial to pastrami, craving a Cubano. Yeah, sounds delicious, but boom! Add the crisp, refreshing taste of Pepsi Zero Sugar and cue the fireworks. Lunch, dinner, or late night, it'll be a sandwich worth celebrating. Trust me, your boy's eaten a lot of sandwiches in his day, and the one thing I can say with absolute fact... Every bite is better with Pepsi.